One of the most colorful characters to occupy some of the highest levels of leadership in the Pennsylvania General Assembly is Bill DeWeese, a one-time Speaker of the House. Uh, Bill was convicted of using public resources for political purposes and spent nearly two years in state prison. He continues to fight for his innocence, but is now also using his experience in the big house to press for reforms in the state house. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to Brews and Views. I'm Matt Briette, president of Commonwealth Partners Chamber of Entrepreneurs. I'm in downtown Harrisburg at Little Lamps Coffee with uh, an old friend. Uh, longtime friend. Uh, I won't comment on his age, uh, which I'm sure he will do at some point. Uh, but Bill DeWeese, it's uh, good to be with you here. Welcome to Brews and Views. Good morning, young fella. <laughs> well, young fella, thank you. Well, Bill, um, we've long known each other from uh, probably over 15 years ago when we first Approaching met. Approaching two uh, decades, yeah, I yeah. would speculate. Yeah, and uh, uh, that was while you were in office. Um, you're no longer in office, uh, but you're here in Harrisburg, and I want to get to that point. Uh, but, of course, we want to talk about little Billy DeWeese. Uh, let's go way back. <laughs> uh, and how you your circuitous route into politics and what you're up to today. Of course, you had a little vacation where you had three hots and a cot for uh, quite a while. That, vacation uh, <laughs> is one of many, many euphemisms, and I'm smiling. It was a staycation. Uh, yes, it was camp. <laughs> or as or, the Philly guys say, away at college. <laughs> Even those that weren't blessed to go away to college, later in life they attended college, quote-unquote. Well, uh, not one that uh, you had to apply to. Actually, you uh, were pressed uh, to. Uh, Full scholarship. We'll, we'll get, we'll, Full scholarship. <laughs> Baseball. We'll, we'll stop talking in euphemisms eventually here, but um, uh, Bill, you grew up in western Pennsylvania. Western Pennsylvania is in your blood, um, and I want to certainly talk about the politics of western Pennsylvania, certainly vis-a-vis sure. -vis what's going on in the country, and We've got a lot to talk about. We're going to try to pack about 10 pounds in a five-pound bag. Um, so we'll do our best here, and we'll keep it uh, bumping along. So uh, tell, tell me about how you grew up, Bill, and then we'll get to uh, all the influences that led you here to Harrisburg. Well, Mom did hair. She was a beautician, and Dad worked in a mill in Pittsburgh. I was born in 1950. They had both served in uniform in World War II. My mother was in the Women's Army Corps. My dad was a sergeant in the U.S. Army, and neither one saw hostile action, but after the war, they married in 46. I was born in 50, to get you my age, mm -hmm. April 18, 1950, so I just turned 68. And I grew up in a little town about 50 miles south of Pittsburgh, and it was idyllic. It was father knows best. It Beaver was, Cleaver land. Yeah. It sure was. Yeah. It sure was. And uh, 1958, I made the first team on the Elks Little League. And I commenced a baseball passion that culminated in a WPIL championship playoff effort at Forbes Field, where we narrowly were edged out. And four of us got to go down south to college. I was able to go to Wake Forest. One of my fellows went to Duke. One went to William and Mary, and one went to East Carolina. The only guy that was able to make the team after the sophomore year was a guy at Duke, and he sat on a bench. So there were a lot of boys <laughs> down south that could play better than we could. But that got me to Wake Forest, where I would describe those years like Scott Fitzgerald described his years at Princeton before World War I, this side of paradise. 
So you think about my blessings as a little boy in Waynesburg, Pennsylvania, in the county seat with little Waynesburg College football games on Saturday mm-hmm. afternoon and the homecomings and absolutely idyllic and then perpetuates four more years at Wake Forest. My academic efforts were circumscribed by a paucity of enthusiasm. Therefore, I graduated like George Custer at West Point at the bottom of my class <laughs> and joined the Marine Corps on graduation day, which coincidentally was John F. Kennedy's well, birthday. Well, you, you fast-forwarded here, Bill, uh, growing <laughs> up in Waynesburg, which, and I have been there, and it is idyllic. It is uh, just a beautiful part of our our state. Um, it's the southwesternmost corner. Uh-huh. The, in fact, the local chamber of commerce refers to it as the cornerstone of the Keystone State. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And so uh, you grew up uh, in a family where, where, where mom and dad politically involved, active? Never. Or, okay. Never. They voted. Did they vote? They, they voted. voted. All right. My mother uh-huh. was an arch Republican, maybe as Republican as you, Matt. Briette. Okay. And my father was a Democrat, and he used to, not that he was all that religious, but he would always talk about the New Testament. And he was an elder in the church, mm-hmm. but he thought that the Democrats were the party that would help the little people, so to speak. And again, he had grown up during the Depression Mm -hmm. and served in the war. And uh, as was referred to recently, or at least in the last few years, the greatest generation, all these men and women, but many of them men had come back from the war. So they were our little league coaches. They were our pony league coaches. They were the dominant forces in the Kiwanis Club, the Mm -hmm. Lions Club, the Rotary Club. And my dad was was one of those people in fact i'll never forget we had only one african-american family in a little town of five thousand and this family had two fellows that were great little league baseball players and some very very mean-spirited character had written the n-word on a big barn near the little league field which was about a mile out of town and by that time, my dad was no longer in the mill, but he was selling Dodges at the local Dodge agency. And he had one of the guys go out and whitewash over the old barn and he faced the N-word. My dad was a warm-hearted, happy guy. I never saw him curse. I never saw him say a bad word. He liked to drink beer, but I never saw him intoxicated. Uh-huh. He was just one happy character. And I think... I'm blessed to have been with him all those years, and my mom and dad's relationship was ostensibly flawless. I just couldn't imagine, n- never saw him well, fussing and fighting. And and I, and I know they are near and dear to your heart, and I know your father passed away uh, not too long ago. My dad died uh, but, in 2010, and mom just died uh, uh-huh. one year ago. In fact, it's a sublime coincidence that we're talking about her, because today she would have been 98. Uh-huh. May uh-huh. 9, May 9, which, as my crazy memory goes, is one day before Stonewall Jackson died after the Battle of Chancellorsville, May 10, 1863. Uh, uh, that's the one thing, Bill, has always amazed me is uh, uh, you must look over, you know, have one of those calendars in front of you. Here's the dates I need to cite today. Would, at one time in my career before uh, Mr. Corbett visited me with the establishment and the authorities, I was trying to memorize something that happened on every single day of the year. I maybe got to a fourth of them. <laughs> well, so Bill, uh, where, where did your interest in politics come about? If your parents weren't, you know, they voted, they voted. but uh, okay, they but voted. they weren't uh, mom was a Republican okay. and dad was a Democrat mm-hmm. and they would kid about it. And I should have listened to your mother. I'm afraid. I certainly yeah. remember 
everything in the 60s. Again, I was born in 50, so I was 10 years old when John F. Kennedy was elected. Mm -hmm. I was 13 when he was gunned down in Dallas. And when I was a little boy, um, at the age of 13, I had four photographs on my little desk. We had a very small home, but after about five or eight years, we were like the second or third family that lived there. But it was only one bedroom, and once I was two or three or four years old, they went up into the attic and remodeled and put knotty pine and made it two bedrooms. And my sister eventually came in 1954. And anyway, I had this desk made out of plywood built into the wall in a semicircle. And I had four photographs on my desk in 1963. John F. Kennedy, mm -hmm. Jesus Christ, Roberto Clemente, <laughs> and Martin Luther King. And that, I was a pretty religious guy as a little fellow. I was not able to hold on to that like I have wanted to, but just when I was a teenager, I was very focused on that. In fact, I thought about being a minister mm -hmm. or an evangelist, because obviously I wanted that <laughs> microphone. <laughs> but anyway. Anyway, uh, getting back to your question about politics, I mean, I was fascinated by John Kennedy as a 10-year-old when he was elected, as a 13-year-old when he was shot, and then as a teenager, his early legacy spurred a lot of people of my generation mm -hmm. to get involved in public life and the Peace Corps and ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. So that motivation, along with the compelling, and again, I've always enjoyed oratory, rhetoric, and Dr. King was preeminent in that regard. Mm -hmm. I think that if Frederick Douglass had lived in the time of the microphone, he would have been a parallel or maybe even exceeded Dr. King. But nevertheless, I was very, very taken by King and, and Kennedy. And as a little boy who, from the greater Pittsburgh area, who could not be impassioned by the acrobatics and the athleticism and the innumerable gifts on the emerald green that Roberto Clemente displayed. <laughs> and I want to tell you about a story about Clemente. Uh -huh. In 1960, they won the World Series in a remarkable, not off the bench, but Mazeroski came off out of the dugout, hit the home run, and went into the record books. The next spring, spring of 61, the Eagles, not the Philadelphia Eagles, the international order of the eagles back in the day when the moose and the elks and the eagles and so forth were dominant had a big banquet in pittsburgh at the brand new brand new hilton hotel just opening up on the point in this gold shimmer you would be greeted by when you came through the tunnel and you'd see the big hilton so i'm 11 years old and we're going to the welcome home banquet for the pittsburgh pirates and it's april one two three four right before the first game of the 61 season after they had won the series and the thing started at six o'clock and my dad takes me in, and I repeated this at my dad's funeral my dad takes me in there about 3 30 he gives 20 bucks to the bus boy now 20 bucks back in 1961 would be like 100 bucks yeah, today sure. and I and, and and he opened the door and we went in to the Hilton ballroom and for like an hour and a half two hours we were the only two people in there except for the staff that was getting ready for the banquet and every table had a big sign, you know, Mazeroski, Clemente, you know, Vernon Law, Dick Grote, Bob Skinner, all of the great, and you can see I have, they can't see it on the radio, but I have the goosebumps. And all of a sudden we go to the Clemente table, nobody in there, and he sits one seat away from me. And at 11 years old, uh -huh. I must have been slow because I couldn't figure out why. And then all of a sudden at six o'clock, the announcer, ladies and gentlemen, 
1960 world champion Pittsburgh Pirates, and they came in down off the stage, and Clemente came and sat right between yeah. me and my dad for two and a half hours. Wow, wow. Now, he, did, he didn't speak very good English at that point, and my Spanish wasn't very good at the age of 11, but, but I was sitting next to Roberto Clemente, the Hall of Famer. So that just punctuates my youth and my childhood, yeah. and the father-son, and my mom. We, again, neither one went to college. They went into the service, and then they went into being a small-town mm -hmm. American couple, Ozzie and Harriet-esque. And we would sit down at the table every night for dinner. And my mom loved candles. And virtually four, five, six nights a week, we would eat by candlelight. Now, it wasn't dark, 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 but most of the lights were down, and mm -hmm. we would eat by candlelight. Even if it was hamburgers or mm -hmm. spaghetti or whatever, scrambled eggs. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was, the, the menu was not elaborate, but the atmosphere was cozy. Mm -hmm. So you end up uh, g going off to Wake Forest uh, to college. And uh, what do you study there? History, History. was my major. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And my passion, and did or at you, least my did academic you, passion. Did you start getting involved in politics in college? or I mean, where where's this political bug come from then? Well, a, a little school like Wake Forest, and it was only 2,200 kids when I came there. Yet we were playing Penn State and Houston. We played in the Astrodome when I was down there. Hmm. We played Auburn. I mean, it was... It was the second smallest school, and I believe it still is, in the NCAA Division One. I. I think Rice Institute in Texas is the smallest of all of the 150 or whatever. It's now Rice University, but... Uh... Oh, did I say Rice Institute? Okay. <laughs> You're dating yourself, but that's I, all right. <laughs> yeah. But Little Wake Forest at that time uh, was dominated by some guys that were playing for the Chicago Bears and Arnold Palmer. The Arnold Palmer Golf Scholarship reached out and... We brought in Lanny Watkins and Curtis Strange and a variety of people. Hmm. In fact, Lanny Watkins was my classmate. And of the four years that I was there, Wake Forest was number one in the United States. They won the NCAA Golf Championship two out of the four years I was there. But again, they had what they called the Arnold Palmer Golf Scholarship. Mm -hmm. And if you're 16, 17 years old and Arnold Palmer shows up at your house, whether it's in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or Johnstown, Pennsylvania, you think, yeah, I might go to yeah, Wake Forest. Right, right, right. <laughs> All expenses paid and I get to hang out with Arnie. <laughs> so we had a we had a wonderful stable of, of young golfers. Mm -hmm. And uh, anyway, I can't imagine as an 18-year-old fellow from up north getting a more unusual chance to see the south and the Charlotte Mecklenburg desegregation case in Charlotte, North Carolina was active at that time. The Greensboro luncheons at the lunch counters was only three or four years in the rearview mirror. And it was still the old South mm -hmm. to a substantial mm -hmm. degree. Now I'm 68, so when I was 18. And like you said, you, you had only one African-American in your community uh, as that a was kid. So back yeah, in Waynesburg, one, one, so, one family, yeah, one family, one family. Two, two brothers. Uh, and, and coincidentally, they were premier athletes and wonderfully happy, warm-hearted kids, and we but all... But so going to the South was quite oh my. the, uh, the yeah. culture shock in a way? Yeah, it's not like going yeah. to Atlanta in 2018. Yeah, yes. right. Yes, you get about... Because you're in, there in 67, 68? Yeah, uh, 68, through, 69, yeah. 70. You go about uh, a mile out of Winston-Salem, and the the red clay of the Carolina Piedmont uh, exhibited uh, all kinds of uh, personalities, mm -hmm. and, and, and many of them would not be... Uh, happy and, and Christian they All right. were so so where so get to where the the, po the politics start well, to enter into this Wake Forest Duke's the premier university in the south but Wake Forest Vanderbilt Emory these are pretty 
I, I would never have gotten to go there had I not been a baseball player. And then, as I told you, or I'm telling you now, my sophomore year, the coach indicated that he didn't need my athletic services. So with some tutors and some good fortune, I got out of there in four years. But it was an academic institution that would have been over my head unless I just really, really studied and worked as hard as I could just to get a, a C, mm-hmm. a C average, and, and, and leave. And boom, in the military right away. But we probably had 20 or 30 student body presidents in their senior year in high school from Lexington, North Carolina, or Yadkinville, North Carolina, or Gibsonian, North Carolina. It seemed like every student body president in North Carolina ended up at Wake Forest. <laughs> so when I got there, I did have the political bug. Uh-huh. And although I had not run for student council offices in high school, I was the campaign manager in my senior year of the young fella that ran and won. Although if I'd have never been born, he would have still won anyway. <clears throat> this is high school. So when I got to college, I decided there were seven offices in the freshman class, and in every class there was the president, the vice president, the secretary, and the treasurer. And then there was a phalanx of three legislators, freshman legislators, sophomore legislators, juniors. So you had you had uh, 12 legislators. This is on the student mm-hmm. council for mm-hmm. the university. Mm-hmm. So I ramped down my ambitions. And, and let all the student body presidents from all over North Carolina run against each other for freshman class president. And I ran for freshman class legislator, one of three seats. I was able to put together a little campaign, and the rest is history. I became the freshman legislator among three. Sophomore year, same thing. But I'm still eyeing student body president as a senior. So, so junior year, I pull back and don't run for anything and just watch the landscape unfold. So this is all calculated. You're, you're cap- <laughs> capital letters, capital letters. Senior year, I participated in the student body race, me and two other gentlemen. One was a hardcore, he was like you, clean cut, nice haircut, and very, very <laughs> religious. The other guy was a hippie, he was way out in left field, and I ran right up the middle. <laughs> I ran right up the middle as the moderate, believe it or not. Last time I ever ran as a moderate. <laughs> Well, we'll get to this, Bill, but you probably are more moderate even today in 2018 uh, relative to where things have gone politically. Possibly. Which I, yeah, which I, I, I certainly want to talk about that. But uh, So you finish up at uh, Wake Forest, and um, uh, you, you end up joining the Marine Corps. Uh, and you, uh, I graduated a, at 11 o'clock in the morning on the 29th day of May 1972, and I was in the Marine Corps at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, two hours uh, later. Uh-huh. Now, I'd already had... My parents didn't know it, but I'd already been down to Raleigh to the federal building and gotten my physical exam, and I was in the officer training program, but you couldn't go in it until you had your college diploma. Well, when you say your parents didn't know, would they, would they have not wanted you to be going into oh, the military? Oh, my father or? definitely was okay. very, very positive. Okay. I mean, they didn't know. It was a surprise. Okay. So here I am, the student body president of a small southern university, graduation day cap and gown, they're not real happy that I'm at the bottom of the class. And when I say bottom, <laughs> 535 graduates, I might have been 515. I mean, I was, I was way the heck down there. So, but yeah, I had the sheepskin. And so dad was happy, mom was happy. And I said, I said, we have one more thing to do. And I'm in cap and gown. And I said, I have to run up to the student body president's office to get something. So they went with me. And the president of the university's office was right down the hall. So I, I said, I want to get down and say goodbye to President Scales. And this was all 
orchestrated. Uh-huh. I walked in. I'm going to get goosebumps again. And there were there was a Marine captain with a purple heart and a silver star missing part of his hand. He'd just come back from Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And a staff sergeant and a gunnery sergeant. And they're in their dress whites. Dress whites. Mm-hmm. And my mother knew at that point. I said, I, by the way, I, I joined the Marine Corps. <laughs> this is the swearing-in ceremony. And, and, the, and the president of the university and his wife, my mom and dad, me, and these three Marines. And when I say missing part of his hand, he missing a couple of fingers. Uh-huh. But, and, but, but he was Hollywood handsome. He was, yeah. he was a poster Marine. The, the whole crazy moment is almost cinematic in my recollection. Mm-hmm. But I'll admit, I was apprehensive. The war was winding down. Bluntly, I did not think I was going to be in the jungles of Southeast Asia. But it was, it was, uh, I was in 72, 3, 4, 5. So Saigon didn't fall till April 30 of 75. And I spent a year overseas, but it was peacetime and it was at a desk. So I tell people I was in the Marines for three years. And I, like I'm looking at you right now, I say nine months was in the mud. But then I quickly say, but it was in Quantico, Virginia, and they were firing blanks. So I, I was I was uh, trained as a Marine lieutenant, and uh, then I was trained as a, a logistics officer. And I served uh, finally with the Marine Air Wing, the first Marine Air Wing out of Iwakuni, Japan, on the satellite base at Futima in Okinawa. And then I came back and was discharged at Camp Pendleton, California, with the first Marine Division. Raced back home, and the state legislator was very, very sick at the time, and that brings me to the next chapter. Yeah, so, so you, the, you come back home after your service. Was that your plan all along? I am hey, going back to Waynesburg, and uh, mm-hmm. do you have a plan uh, other than... My roommate and I at Camp Pendleton and three or four other guys spent the last couple months of our active duty service in the spring of 75, both in Los Angeles and in San Diego. And I had interviews with the Secret Service and the Central Intelligence Agency at the Federal Building in San Diego. I tried to get one with the FBI, but at that time they were hiring nothing but lawyers and accountants. Sometimes they open up and have a hiring phase for general field agents, but we were all young lieutenants. And, well, we were and all I have ho. to say, my uh, Republican uncle, who was an FBI recru- recruiter, he probably sniffed out your liberalism, and that kept you out of the FBI early on. Well, I had voted for McGovern <laughs> in 1972, so maybe somebody did catch up on that. But I also went up with my roommate who eventually became an Oklahoma Highway Patrolman. And we were able to go through the Los Angeles Police Department, the LAPD Academy, uh, not just as a tour, not just for a one-day tour, but uh, we were riding with the police. Uh, I rode with the police in the Wilshire District uh, near Hollywood, and I spent some time uh, thinking about a career in law enforcement, which when you think about the ultimate path that uh, <laughs> I've been on is somewhat ironic. Uh-huh. You got involved in the law, but uh, not in the enforcement. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's a, yeah. an affirmative. <laughs> well, we can talk about that. But uh, so you end up coming back uh, home and you said uh, the legislator um, is deciding to uh, call it quits. He was desperately ill. And he retired in the middle of his term and subsequently passed away before the end of his Mm. term. So five of us jumped in the Democratic primary and a woman jumped into the Republican primary. There was a special election. As my late father said, Bill, you got a shot at this because you're the only one that doesn't have a real job. (laughs) By the time that I was back, my dad had me down at the Texaco station, which was subsumed within the Dodge Agency, this little Dodge Agency. You could put two cars in the showroom to tell you how big the Dodge Mm -hmm. Agency was. But I would pump gas from 8.30 till 2.30. 
every day. And then I go out and knock on doors till dark. And I did that from the summer of 75 until the April election. And that's how I think I was able to win. Uh, I was a Marine lieutenant who had just gotten out, and the other people really did have real jobs, so they couldn't knock on doors as vigorously, and I think that was the differential. And this was uh, 1975? 75, 76, the uh -huh. winter of 75, the spring of 76. And so you're uh, sworn in then in 76? In Believe it or not, I was elected on Matthew Ryan's birthday. April 27th. Former which is, Speaker of the House. Yes, yeah. also, as you might remember, the, the birthday of President U.S. Grant. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, the, the, the history uh, continues to flow, uh, Bill. Uh, and if anybody wants to look it up, they can. Yeah, yeah uh, uh, somebody will, uh, which is good, just to keep uh, tabs on you, make sure you're not uh, totally full of it. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah not, the, the adverb's important, totally. <laughs> exactly. That's why I chose it, Bill. Uh, so so uh, you end up getting elected then in uh, 1976. And, and, then, and then sworn in on May 10, which I will admit... I did go out and look and see what it, all had happened in history on May, on May 10, 10. Uh -huh. and it was uh, Stonewall Jackson's death day, and I, I can't remember, uh, oh, I know, uh, Winston Churchill became Prime Minister of England on May 10, 1940, here at the of, microphone. Of course. <laughs> here at the microphone, I was momentarily forgetful. So, um, Bill, I, I know the dynamics uh, in western Pennsylvania has definitely shifted uh, in, over time here, and even goes back to your comments with regard to uh, uh, John Kennedy. Um, I, I, I wonder, would John Kennedy get elected in the Democratic Party today, uh, and what has uh, transformed uh, within the party even since your childhood, uh, particularly out in western Pennsylvania, because there certainly seems to be a shift going on and sort of this whole liberal to progressive uh, I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts on as you've observed things in your your time from being in office to uh, some of the dynamics uh, in western Pennsylvania. I think that as a young fellow growing up, I was in the heart of the labor movement from Wisconsin's and Minnesota's ore mines and Wisconsin's uh, industrial belt all the way down through Michigan. The same Appalachian Rust Belt that catapulted President Trump to mm -hmm. office. And you just take that, that swath of land, again, from Minnesota all the way to northern Alabama, the steel mills of Birmingham and so forth, and uh, eastern Kentucky, uh, southeastern Ohio, the whole state of West Virginia, southwestern Pennsylvania. So if in that long piece of real estate, western Pennsylvania is right in the middle. And one could think long and hard before a person could come up with a group of folks that were as focused on organized labor as those tens and tens and tens of thousands of steel workers and coal miners, at least from the 1890s all the way up to the 1970s and 80s. Mm -hmm. So you had a seven or eight decade patch of time where FDR's legacy, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's legacy of, of New Deal liberalism and collective bargaining rights and everything that the labor unions brought to the table and, in my view, helped construct the middle class. I know that might be somewhat trite, 
but the fact that they were now only working eight hours unless they were getting overtime, the fact that workplace safety had a high profile in their contract negotiations, that their health care was part and parcel of their job, they had a pension. And I really think that for decade after decade after decade and the militant biracial UMWA, United Mine Workers of America, in the 1890s, all the way up through the commencement of my public life in the 70s, was a overwhelming force. So I'm confident that labor and its contributions to American society and the building up of the American middle class. Well, and, and honestly, co- helping to codify uh, many of these safety issues and uh, worker rights uh, into law. Sure. Uh, and so uh, really contributing in many ways to the, the public policy development. As a young fellow in his 20s running for the state legislature from Greene County, Pennsylvania, it would have been impossible for me to think that four decades later that a Republican populist message, yeah. especially one delivered by someone who, as <laughs> early as this morning, I heard how many times he took the Fifth Amendment in his first divorce with Ivanka on, on, on adultery charges. I mean, this character, uh, his message was overwhelmingly well-received. Uh, Mrs. Clinton was... Uh, the, the most uh, limited, I'll try to be polite, of all the candidates of my adulthood, of my uh-huh. memory. Mm-hmm. I don't know about James G. Blaine or Franklin Pierce in the 19th century, but Mrs. Clinton was such an abominable uh, candidate that uh, Mr. Trump's ascendancy, now President Trump's ascendancy, was very, very tangible. You could feel it weeks and weeks and mm-hmm. weeks and weeks before back there. But if you think four decades before, it was a transformation of Herculean proportion. I just cannot fathom it, nor as a person involved in the public dialogue for many years, can I really get my arms around what happened down in Montgomery, Chester, Delaware, Mm -hmm. uh, around Philadelphia. The changes down there from Republican, the war board in Delaware County and so forth, to now being competitive seats in Congress and the State House, State Senate, vis-a-vis just the flip side of that coin over where I live. Well, I want to get back to that um, uh, because I I think that there's some unique things happening even now with uh, natural gas, certainly uh, maybe replacing some of the coal and steel uh, mills uh, in western Pennsylvania and that dynamic. No doubt, but for every job in the gas field, there used to be 100 in in, in coal and steel combined. Yeah, but uh, certainly I want to get back to that uh, here but let's get to your time in the state legislature. Sure. Uh, 39 uh, or 36 years, 11 months and 14 days before Corbett put me in handcuffs. Well, uh, and so, you know, uh, we can speed right to that, uh, Bill. <laughs> um, uh, of course, uh, Tom Corbett as the attorney general uh, in Pennsylvania is, uh, well, things had come to his attention, uh, that there was some uh, bad behavior amongst legislators and ends up, uh, particularly going through uh, the House of Representatives uh, and uh, well, grabs quite a few members of uh, leadership. There were 26, you, yeah. 26 mm-hmm. folks that were charged uh, in the membership and the staff. Mm-hmm. And uh, you end up uh, being... We, Most people yeah. pled and a handful of us said that we didn't think we were guilty and we took it to trial. And uh, many of us uh, have appellate dynamics that are still ongoing. Mm-hmm. But I did have the chance as we 
referred early in this interview to experience uh, government housing from a different perspective. <laughs> and although it's crazy to say, but I had, I've had many blessings. And if you are incarcerated and you have your health and you have your family, and then you have your friendships, both inside the facility and outside. And I was in a medium security facility for 23 months, and I got along very well. Well, and you were a medium um, relative to the others that were convicted. You were at the highest level of well, security, right? Well, yeah. there are five levels of incarceration, or I should say control, by the Department of Corrections. Okay. Uh, level number one is you're on probation or parole. Level number two, you're in minimum security. Level number three, you're in medium, which is where I was. Uh -huh. Level number four, you're in maximum, and level number five, you're on death row. Uh -huh. So I was in the middle. Now, all the other politicians and staff, and I think out of the 26 indicted, I think 19 were able to plea bargain or get immunity. But as far as the, those of us that went, quote, unquote, away, uh -huh. or were away at camp or away at college or whatever euphemism, and the slammer, <laughs> the jug, the joint, and the hooskow. You heard them all, they yes. I heard them all. I would say that I was the next to the last to go in because it was a five-year ordeal as far as the investigation and uh, the trial and the pre-incarceration process and bail pending appeal, et cetera, et cetera. But once I went, the minimum security facilities, there are only three of them, one's over in Somerset at Laurel Highlands, the other's up at Mercer, and then the third one is at Waymart. Well, some of my colleagues were already habituating those three sites, so the next one up was medium, and that's what I got. And, they I want, and you think they wanted to keep you all separate? Uh, to some that, degree. That, okay. mm -hmm. To some degree. It was jocularly referred to by somebody. Because you might uh, collaborate and have a well, jailbreak? Is, was the the lighthearted humor was, and <laughs> Secretary Wetzel denies this, and I have to believe him because he's an honorable man, but the urban legend was that Wetzel said, I'm not going to put Deweese any place where he can start a caucus. <laughs> so I, I, I mentioned that to the secretary the other day on the, uh, on the uh, escalator in the Capitol building, and he, he chortled, but he denied it. <laughs> anyway, it's looking back, <clears throat> it reminds me of Nat King Cole's Looking Back, marvelous, uh, marvelous song about <laughs> mistakes that are made. Anyway, looking back, I think that the fact that I was put in a facility with uh, you know, 100, 200, and I'm not sure because the count always oscillated, but mm -hmm. there were between 100 and 200 men doing life sentences. Uh, I was in a medium security facility, but if you're doing life in a medium security facility, that means you've already been in level four. You've already been in max, and you behave yourself. Uh -huh. So I think it's absolutely off the wall for me to look you in the eye and tell you that I flourished in there, but it was almost like I got a PhD in criminal justice yeah. and sociology, psychology, and anyway, I made up, I twisted my brains around and said, I'm going to get through this yeah, and do well. Make the most of it. Absolutely. And you visited me in prison, and I had almost 20 members of the House and Senate come up to say hello, and... I was blessed to have many, many visitors. Life was uh, life was tolerable, and uh, here we are. Well, I, I visited a, a number of times, uh, and uh, while you may not have had a caucus, uh, I think you earned nicknames of senator or mayor. Uh, and well, uh, my you, favorite <laughs> one was Mr. Bill, the crooked congressman. That's. <laughs> 
That was my. <laughs> and then they'd say, Mr. Bill, we know why you're here. You stole out that money from the Capitol building. Well, but I, and I know that uh, in talking to uh, some of the corrections officers there, they said, uh, Bill DeWeese is actually the happiest guy in here. Uh, so despite uh, losing your freedom, I only, know you maxed It was only 686 yeah. nights. Yeah. <laughs> I talked to guys. Who's counting? I talked to guys that said, yeah, I got locked up in the county jail for a DUI back in, you know, 86 or something. Mm-hmm. I said, yeah, we'll try 686 <laughs> of those nights. <laughs> Well, and, and so uh, I guess just your, your policy perspective, uh, obviously you had dealt with criminal justice issues as I'd a been, lawmaker. I'd what been, was surprising I'd been very, you? Yeah. I've been very progressive on those issues, yeah. and I'd voted against mandatory sentencing. I thought the judges should make the call, not the state legislature, relative to mandatory. Uh-huh. And when I got in there, the inmates knew about my record. Just a very small world in there, and one guy who looked like he could play for the Steelers or the Eagles. He had, a, he had the dreadlocks and a six-pack, and he was doing life. And he's probably 28 years old. And uh, I remember I told him I'd only been there a few days, and I said, I plan on being a model inmate. And he says, inmate? You ain't no inmate. You're a convict. You got convicted, didn't you? <laughs> and then he smiled. And, I mean, I was, uh, th- there were 1,200 of us. About 800 African-American youngsters. And if you're in your 60s, they're all youngsters. But yeah. uh, the overwhelming number in their, tw- in their 20s and 30s. Uh, and then about 100 Puerto Rican kids, uh, Hispanic kids from uh, Allentown, Redding, Philadelphia. About 300 whites. And many of the whites were child molesters. And if you're over the age of 40 you're, and, and Caucasian, you're perceived uh, as being a potential child molester. So I was, I was very blessed because the night before I got locked up, they were talking, they being the Wilkes-Barre, Scranton radio and TV stations, and everybody in prison that's been there for a year or two or three saves their $19 a month that they work at the laundry or whatever, and they eventually get a TV. So there's a lot of TVs on a cell block. Mm. So it was famous, or not famous, but some state rep speaker of the house was going to get locked up the next day. And again, when I walked onto the block, another young Young uh, drug dealer, murder, I don't remember exactly what his crime was. Because you don't ask people. You only learn okay. over time. Okay. Somebody, usually somebody tells you or they'll tell you. But one guy came up to me and said, this is within days. He says, well, you ain't no Jimmy Hoffa, but you're the closest thing to a celebrity we got. So, <laughs> so on B Block, and you, you may or may not recall, but when I got out, I wrote a piece for uh, Penn Live with uh, Jeff Coleman helping mm-hmm. me edit it. Uh, the man of B Block. Well, I wrote it the night I stayed up all night the night before I got out, and I wrote it, and, and Jeff helped me edit it. But it was uh, I would recommend it. The yeah. men of mm-hmm. B Block. It's on the internet, mm-hmm. and that is a sinosure of my experience. And then I'm not going to perform it here, but I did do a rap song. Uh, indeed, and it's a it's a good this, rap. This song. is a family friendly uh, yes. podcast, yes. Uh, but, uh, yes, but certainly characterized your uh, your it, stay there. It, at, there's uh, no better word than characterized <laughs> because part of the, it, what I did was I'd come home, come home back to the cell at night, <laughs> Freudian slip. But it was only 686 nights. But I would come back to the cell and I'd think of a different place in the facility, whether it was the yard, the chow hall, the gym. You know the walkway, you know, the, the 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 classes where they had some classes. It's woefully inadequate in education. We can talk about yeah. prison reform in a few minutes if you would like to. But I just would incorporate into my song about four lines at a time. And if you're there for 22 and a half to 23 months, 
uh, I came up with a pretty good song. You've heard it, uh-huh. and uh, although it is, a, it, it's a bit uh, salty. Salty is yes. the best word. <laughs> it, but but I, I I did I did uh, when I got out. I was up in New York City, and uh, Mark Schweiker, who was a former governor mm-hmm. and good good pal of mine, uh, we were out at an event one night, and uh, Corbett was still governor for another month and a half. Uh, Wolf had already won. This was Christmas of fourteen, Pennsylvania Society, and I sang it to the former governor, the my rap song, and then he, he looked across the bar, and this was late, late, late at night, and Corbett's security detail was over there. They'd already put the governor and Mrs. Corbett to their room, and they were asleep. This was midnight, 12, 30, 1 o'clock. So he brings over these state troopers. <laughs> I sang it again. I sang this crazy rap song to Corbett's bodyguards. <laughs> and, and you can imagine most of the songs about Corbett. <laughs> Well, we may have to have you do it at the end of this, Bill, no, so no. that anybody wants to, to hear it, uh, they could do so. Uh, that will be your call. So uh, you end up getting out, Bill, and, and I do want to get into some of oh, the... By the way, the charges yeah, yeah. were theft of services. Right. That, uh, yeah, it's not... I was, gonna, I was actually going to say that. that, this, that you, know, you had Bonus Gate, uh, which was... Uh, well, it was 1.4 yeah. million yeah. in bonuses were charged, and uh, there were email traffic that confirmed that and then and Speaker then John Perzell yeah. mm-hmm. pled guilty to a charge that was in the media of 10 million dollars worth of computer hardware software staff time for electoral purposes for, uh, for elections that were ostensibly meant for government yeah purposes uh, Steve Stetler and I were charged the same day and, and again uh, Mike had 79 counts and John had 82 counts they charged me and Steve with six counts of campaigning or authorizing campaigning during the during the workday, and both of us took it to trial. And as you know, his has been vacated. I don't know whether I don't know the status going forward, but his case has been overturned. Mm-hmm. So that conviction no longer is extant. And uh, I'm in a pellet circumstance, so I don't want to talk about my case per se. But the charges were that our folks were campaigning during the day. And that was theft of services. Well, and, which, and, and the essence of my appeal was, and the reason I took it to trial, is I had 43 men and women over the period of time that the charges included that heard me admonish my staff, make sure you're not campaigning on government hours, make sure you've got a leaf slip for a personal day, a vacation day, or a, or a lunch hour. And I had 43 witnesses, and the court only allowed eight of those witnesses because that's how many they put up against me. Uh, eight of my best friends. Mm-hmm. And parenthetically, Matt, I've had coffee, lunch, or dinner with seven out of the eight people that testified against me. Testified against me on the stand. Sent me to prison. Uh, but again, while I was in there, and it didn't take me long, I just said, listen, I'm not going to go through my life as an unhappy character. I'm going to get out and, and find those guys and gals and talk to them. And we're all, seven out of eight, or we're all back together as good acquaintances, good friends. But I really think that... Uh, if I'd had 43 against eight in that jury dynamic, I could have prevailed because uh, they were out for three or four days uh, after they heard. I think we concluded on a Wednesday afternoon, and they didn't come back with a with a verdict until Monday. And uh, again, I was tried uh, 210 miles from my hometown. I think it, we we asked for a different venue, and uh, here you know here we go. We'll just see what happens. But again, I wanted to make sure that. Uh, I, I took my father's uh, sense of humor, uh, my mom's uh, steadfast work ethic, and uh, came out of that 
uh, unhappy setting as a uh, as a more more full uh, and well-rounded person. Well, and and somebody um, you know in that situation may say, "All right, I am done with Harrisburg." But uh, here we are sitting in downtown Harrisburg, almost in the shadow uh, of the Capitol. That's right, and you are uh, you continue to uh, work on issues that uh, uh, you're interested in. Certainly. Uh, uh, yeah. So I'm what are you doing? I'm a volunteer with the Pennsylvania Prison Society, and I went down by train yesterday to Philly and was at uh, our annual meeting. And we have four meetings a year, but one meeting is for organizational purposes. And it was at, held at the Eastern Penitentiary, which is a, an old museum. Mm-hmm. It was, it's was it been closed for decades. Capone decades. was uh, held Al there for Al Capone a bit, yeah. was there. Al Capone was there. Senator Sharif Street was there last night, as well as others. And uh, then I came home late, late last night. But I'm in Philadelphia on a semi-regular basis with my work with the Pennsylvania Prison Society, which, by the way, was founded in 1787 by Benjamin Franklin, Benjamin Rush, and other Philadelphia And it was what what they they were moving away from the traditional jail, if you will, to penitentiary uh, and using the word penitent. Uh, and rehabilitation was really the whole driving of, of Eastern. I, I, I know I've been there. Yes. And so, I mean, that was sort of this. And it seems like we're, we're, we're getting back to that when it comes to criminal justice reform of like, hey, when we send people away, 90% of the folks going through the front door are going to come out the back door. Nine out of ten. So, so we, we need to make sure we do a good job of, uh, well, equipping those folks with the education they need, with the skills that they may need uh, in order to be a productive member of society when they're sent back. And I think we're failing woefully, drastically, and seemingly incontrovertibly because six or seven out of ten young fellas, and I'm going to speculate that the female population mirrors these statistics, they're going back in. Mm -hmm. So seven out of ten that get out, go back in. And I think, and it's not John Wetzel's fault at all, I think he is a superlative member of the effort, the community in criminal justice, to make reforms. I don't think we could have had a better person under Corbett yeah. and now under under Wolf. But I really think that DOC, Department of Corrections, could potentially be named DOW, Department of Warehousing, because while I was at State Correctional Institution Retreat, Near Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania. Ironic name, retreat. Of well, course, it was a former yeah. mental yeah. hospital, uh-huh. uh, but they didn't change the appellation. So retreat is very ironic because, uh, as my rap song would indicate, and I'm not going to use any foul language, but seven rows of razor wire messed my view. That joint was old, nothing new. Anyway, it was very, <laughs> very austere. But seven out of ten of those young fellows that got out the door carjackers, drug dealers, automobile theft, uh, aggravated assault, arson. I mean, a lot of them them spend a lot of time there. Uh, Five to ten was not an unusual sentence. In fact, I'll never forget this one Hispanic fellow named Alberto, and he had a back as big as this table that we're looking at right now. Mm -hmm. And on the back was a magnificent tattoo and I mean it was like a foot and a half high and a foot wide and it was a tattoo of the Virgin Mary and out of each one of her shoulders was emanating a flag one of the United States and one of Puerto Rico and he was rather famous because he would do his push-ups on his hands he would be standing on his head and do push-ups that's how strong (laughs) this guy was and he was doing 20 to 40 and again, you don't ask somebody what they're doing unless you get to be really good buddies. But Alberto and the 
the senator, and I'm smiling because <laughs> I was never a senator, but I was in there. Anyway, he, he would always call me senator. And one day I said, Alberto, you got 20 to 40. And he was like on year 17, so uh -huh. he's out by now. Uh -huh. I said, I just looked him in the eye and said, what the heck did you do? And he said, Mr. Bill, I kills the drug dealer that came to kill me. Hmm. I mean, that's the kind of world that we have in there. But I don't know that Alberto is going to be okay on the outside. Yeah. Because during the two years before I got there and the year that I was there, two years that I was there, in that four-year period, they had closed four different entities at that one medium-sized facility with 1,200 men. They closed the culinary school. They closed the body shop school. Mm -hmm. They closed the music school. And they closed the facility where they were growing plants, the greenhouse. Okay. They tore it down right in front of my eyes. And these youngsters, especially from tough inner-city settings, whether it's Philly or Pittsburgh, Lancaster, Reading, Erie, if you get out of prison and you've got an ability with plants and you could go into the Philadelphia suburbs and take care of Dick Sprague's house with mowing the yard and mm -hmm. taking care of the plants, or you could go down to the local Holiday Inn and be in a band and make some money, or you could certainly, I mean, one of the most alluring entities outside of the prison is a kitchen in a big hotel or a nice restaurant where these men and women can get a, a fresh start. Well, they, they, they close the culinary school. The body shop, I mean, those are, those are those four entities, they close them. Why did John yeah. Wetzel close them? Because he didn't have the money. Why? Mm. Because the legislature wouldn't give him the money. Why? Because we don't have a severance tax. <laughs> good good segue there, Bill. Uh, because, I thought you'd like that. Uh, so, uh, I mean, that, that to <laughs> let's, let's, let's tackle it right now because uh, I know that that topic continues to be something uh, that, uh, that Tom Wolf desperately wants, uh, as do all of the unions that, uh, of course, uh, to pay for their pensions and health care and, and so forth, that being the government uh, uh, sector unions. Um, but out west, this has become one of the big job uh, creators uh, in your communities back back home, uh, and certainly in western Pennsylvania. Um, are you 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 have a tension there of uh, hey, let's tax the have the highest tax in the country, uh, you know, on top of the impact fee that is already paid uh, by the gas industry. Versus, I mean, you seem to be caught in the middle here, Bill, or are you not? No, I'm not. I think, <laughs> I think that under Governor Rendell, we should have looked at the 21 states that have a severance tax, from George Bush's Texas to Dick Cheney's Wyoming, all the 21 states that have severance tax, West Virginia, No Ohio. income taxes, of course, in those, but uh, we'll, would, we'll, we'll... We're talking about one tax at a time, right? <laughs> <laughs> if I, we don't have it, we need it. Uh, but if we do and they don't, it's okay, right? Got it. I appreciate your perspective. <laughs> I just don't happen to identify with it. But I think that we needed a severance tax, no impact fee, somewhere in the middle among the 20 states. And it never came about. And I think the impact fee gains us a certain amount of leverage, especially in the communities where the gas is extracted. But the Commonwealth, common wealth, I think, would have been better served. And even now, I think a modest tax that would be built into the business plan of these big, whether it's Shell or Range or whatever, I think some of these would have, at least during the Rendell administration, 
they would have gone along with this kind of attacks. Now it's being contested vigorously, and I don't think there's going to be anything happening this year, especially in a gubernatorial year, mm -hmm. and I think the complexion of the next legislature will determine what's going to be forthcoming relative to the severance tax conversation in the spring of 2019. I don't know that it has enough momentum to get past the finish line, but it's definitely one of the subjects that we do talk about a great deal in the Capitol. Well, it certainly has become sort of that uh, holy grail for uh, Tom Wolf and, and for a number of Democrats and even some Southeast Republicans that uh, uh, we continue to hear that Pennsylvania being the I only think, state. I, I think uh, if uh, my good friend, uh, Speaker Mike Thursday, and I don't say that with any irony, where he's been very, very warm to me mm -hmm. and uh, we were always good acquaintances, but when I was going through my troubles, he never wavered in his friendship. Uh, I, we don't agree on a whole lot except friendship. Yeah, but yeah. but uh, if, if Mike would have been, if he would have been inclined to put it up for a vote, uh, I, I think uh, with, as you indicated, yeah. the Southeastern Republicans, the uh, 15 or 20, and that, and that phalanx would have taken it uh, over, the, yeah. over the goal line. And, and unfortunately, as I see it, I think it's just become a political, uh, you know, cudgel that is being utilized as opposed to just sound public policy. Uh, obviously, the impact fee generating more revenue on top of all the other taxes that the, these uh, businesses pay uh, than even the severance tax in our surrounding states. So it's actually um, you might regret getting what you hope for uh, in some regards of getting a severance tax and doing away with the, the impact fee. But we, we won't debate that uh, right now. I guess uh, we have a little bit. But um, when it comes to uh, sort of the collegiality uh, bill, because you and I, we've gotten along for a long, long time. When you were in office, uh, we had good relationship. You talk about Speaker Terzai being from the other side. Are we losing that in Harrisburg, or is this really more just a national phenomenon that you that we see of everybody kind of running to their tribes uh, and not really being willing to come together and work together? What, what's your assessment of kind of Harrisburg and politics here in Pennsylvania? I think that when Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan were able to mix it up in the 1980s and get work accomplished in Washington, D.C., in the 1980s, going back 150 years to the age of Andrew Jackson in the 1830s. People got things done, and people can deprecate the smoke-filled room all they want to, but the smoke-filled room gave us Abraham Lincoln. The smoke-filled room gave us Harry Truman, two of our preeminent chief executives in the national framework. And, and uh, Donald Trump, maybe? I don't know. <laughs> <clears throat> I'm going to be My respectful. <laughs> I, I was a former military officer. I'm going to be respectful the of, of, of the commander-in-chief. Uh, I certainly uh, was not happy with my candidate <laughs> in the national election. Uh, I did. Uh, I did. Uh, Sorry to knock you off of your, uh, your stride there. No, but, that's uh, okay. Yeah. That's okay. Because well, you didn't because you go right back to her husband, Bill Clinton, mm -hmm. was able with even Newt Gingrich's perpetual assaults. Uh, hypocritical assaults, I might add, on Bill Clinton's sex life yes. when Newt has a mistress or two. But Clinton was able to mix it up conversationally with a lot of people, and uh, I think it was George Bernard Shaw that once observed that Oscar Wilde was the greatest conversationalist since Jesus Christ. Well, Bernard Shaw never met Bill Clinton. I mean, Clinton, I think, I think that after that, after Clinton left office, we haven't had, at the national level, a lot of 
deal making. And I know you might not agree with this, but the earmarks of yesteryear when the preeminent Bud Schuster of South Central Pennsylvania and Jack Murtha, the Marine Colonel from Johnstown, the two congressional giants of our generation, they were able to get things done. And then with Well, the, we had our whams here in Harrisburg, yeah, right? and, and, the walking and, and around the, money. The pejorative was walking yeah, around right. money. But if you took if you took just say two hundred million out of thirty four billion, we're talking about less than one percent of the state budget going to legislative leaders to share with their memberships. For little league fields, right, for right, ambulances, right. for fire Nobody ever went to jail on whams. Nobody ever went to jail. Mm-hmm. They were audited by the secretary of the budget. They were audited by the auditor general. They were audited. So you're saying, well, these are things that we may not like, whether it's smoke-filled rooms or even whams, whether it's money going to the, you know, put discretionary a, funds. Yeah, okay. But they're all audited. But you think that these are the things, kind of the grease that make government work? Is that is that what you're arguing? Well, for 150 years, yeah. there was some degree of cordiality and things got done, notwithstanding, I remember during the pre-Civil War debates, Preston Brooks uh, beating the Massachusetts mm-hmm. senator with a cane. I mean, and the fact that uh, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton were going at it about biracial children that Jefferson had produced in the election of 1800. I mean, there's always been tough, aggressive, salty exchanges. Mm -hmm. But now we are in a 24-hour news cycle, number one. Number two, we are in what I call the politics of personal destruction. And number three, and finally, we are in a year-round fundraising type of situation. We had a congressional race back in the West recently and other people that were talking about running, it was explained that you have to raise $5,000 a week. That's a half a million a year. You have to raise at least a million a year in a competitive setting. You have no life. So again, 24-hour news. Number two, personal destruction, day in, day out. Number three, constant fundraising. And then we get up to this Capitol building or the other 49 or the big Capitol building in Washington, D.C., and everybody's trying to preserve their seat, mm-hmm. and nobody's talking to anybody, and things aren't getting done. Do you think we can turn this around? I mean, do you think we can get back to where you have, uh, re- you know, real bipartisan uh, deals or uh, problems? Well, I'm an optimist. Yeah. I'm a congenital optimist by nature, and that's not going to change. And I'm doing everything I can to bring my union brothers and sisters into rooms where they will be talking to Republican members of the House, Republican members of the Senate, rank and file, committee chairman. Bill, I appreciate uh, your taking time uh, to join me here at Little Lamps. And uh, anything else that you would like to say and share with, uh, with our listeners? No, but to take off on your last question, I really do think that... We have so many blessings in the United States. Fundamentally and undergirding everything is the Constitution. And I just can't figure out, and my own experience gives me an additional texture, if you're healthy and you have friends and you have this wonderful opportunity to serve in the State House or the State Senate or in the executive branch here or the judicial branch, why we just can't get along better and figure out how to compromise and there's got to be compromise on the edges, no matter yeah. what. And again, on, on policy, it's yes. where you don't have to surrender your principles or compromise your principles. Uh, but we say, look, in order for us to accomplish something, you need to leave this table with something, and I need to leave this table. And that's, I think, that's always been the American way. Yes, hundred percent. And I know that you're going to roll your eyes, but <laughs> even on 
the pension legislation of recent days, the liquor legislation of recent days, mm-hmm. certainly nobody got what they wanted. Mm-hmm. But it, in your view, inched its way in the right direction. Sure. You bet. In the direction of some of my friends, it inched its way in the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. But at least there was some momentum. And I doff my hat to the Republican leadership in the General Assembly and to Governor Wolf. And although it wasn't quite Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan, it was certainly heading in that Mm -hmm. direction. And if I'm blessed to have my mom and dad's longevity, I'm going to spend the next couple of decades, and I can't believe I just said that, but I mean it, (laughs) working with my labor union brothers and sisters and uh, middle-class folks and people that are incarcerated, especially families of the incarcerated, Mm -hmm. and trying to have some small impact in that building. I'm always focusing on the Judiciary Committees and what they're doing and sentencing and so forth. And I'd like to think that I have something to share vis-a-vis my experiences because I got to be the Speaker of the House and then I got to be a resident of the big house. (laughs) And I'm a better man by both experiences. Well, on that note, Bill, I appreciate uh, your joining me. Uh, I appreciate our friendship uh, while we've always... uh, seem to be on opposite sides on policy fights, uh, we can do so in, a, um, I think, a respectful manner and something that uh, I hope we can model for others uh, and how we can actually accomplish uh, big things in Harrisburg still. I look forward to our next chat, and we could do a whole podcast just on criminal justice reform. And we may very well do that. So, Bill, thanks for joining me here on Brews and Views. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to Brews and Views, a production of Commonwealth Partners Chamber of Entrepreneurs. Find us on Facebook at Commonwealth Partners and follow Matt Briette at M-A-T-T-B-R-O-U-I-L-L-E-T-T-E.